Thank you so much for joining us for this segment of the Clouville Report. I'm Dr. Eric Clouville, and I'm your host. On this episode of the Clouville Report, we'll be introducing a new segment entitled What's in It? In this series, we'll dive deeply into pieces of public policy, legislation, court decisions, legal cases, and the like, in order to better understand the intricacies of these complex and impactful words and how they control our lives. As you know, according to my theory of laws and public policy, is that I believe that laws and public policy are created in its effect or in its intent to control and dictate people, places, and resources. By understanding how public policy works, by understanding the means of which uh, the policy itself was created for, and the legislative history behind it, I believe that we are a better and more informed society and can really truly understand how we are governed and make the appropriate changes to how we're governed. Today, we're going to take a look at the George Floyd Policing Act. Now, the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act of 2020, which was a House Bill uh, 7120, was actually passed almost one year ago, June 25th, 2020. It was introduced in the House June 8th of 2020. Within this bill, it was a response to the horrific murder and death of George Floyd at the hands of former officer and now convicted felon, Derek Chauvin. According to House Bill 7120, this bill addresses a wide range of policies, issues, and regarding policing practices, law enforcement accountability, and the like. It's the increased accountability for law enforcement misconduct. It restricts the use of certain policing practices. It enhances transparency and data collection and establishes best practices and training requirements. Now, there are many other things that this particular bill does, and we're gonna dive into it inside this segment and this series entitled, What's In It? But before we do so, I want us to take a look at this montage from Reuters and NBC News discussing and showing the complexities of the George Floyd crime bill. Take a look. A bill on Wednesday called the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. Democratic Representative Karen Bass co-wrote the legislation. One of the goals of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act is to raise the standards of policing in America and also to transform the culture. The law would ban controversial police tactics and make it easier to sue police officers for violating suspects' constitutional rights. The bill includes measures which would restrict funds to local governments that allow chokeholds, ban no-knock warrants, and require police agencies to provide data on the use of deadly force. Its most controversial provisions would change qualified immunity for police, making it easier to sue police for excessive use of force. Its prospects of passing in the Senate remain uncertain. Conservatives have attacked the bill, saying it would be dangerous for police officers and community safety. Democrats pushed the bill through the House by a vote of 220 to 212, with only one Republican vote in favor. Bill in Floyd's name. What it signifies is uh, we have people that understand that 
what happened on that day was wrong. Louisville, Kentucky banned no-knock warrants following Breonna Taylor's death. After Elijah McClain died, Colorado got rid of qualified immunity, a policy that made it harder to sue police officers. Banning both at the federal level is now part of the reform bill, along with banning chokeholds and creating nationwide databases of police misconduct. In 2021, we don't have a federal database that tracks police officers in America killing people. The House passed a similar bill last year, but it failed in the Republican-controlled Senate. Many Republicans now favor more limited reforms and argue this bill goes too far. Taking away qualified immunity will lead to police officers not taking the decisive actions and rendering impossible to do their job. But for Felonis Floyd, it's a step in the right direction, even as he dreads re-watching the video of his brother's death in court. Who wants to see their brother crying? The officer's still sat there on his neck like it was okay. It's never okay to hurt somebody like that. We shouldn't have to go to court for anything like this. As you can see, especially by the emotional response by George Floyd's brother, it is, it's a bill that was passed out of the, again, the aftermath of that heinous murder. At the same time, it's a bill that some believe should have been passed and created long ago. It was stated in the very beginning that this bill is to raise the standards of policing and also to support communities, transparency, accountability, and basically to provide a framework or 21st century community policing. Now, within this bill, there are several other things and we're gonna de delve into it. But let's take a look. Number one, it establishes a framework to prevent and remedy racial profiling by law enforcement at the federal, state, and local levels. It also limits the necessary use of force and restricts the use of no-knock warrants, choke holes, and cardioid holes, basically where you're cutting off the blood flow. The bill also creates a national registry, the National Police Misconduct Registry, to compile data on complaints and records of police mis misconduct. Think about that, complaints and records. We're going get to get more into that in just a moment. It also establishes a new reporting requirement, including on the use of officer force, other misconduct, routine police practices, and others, such as stops, searches, those things that are prohibited by the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. It also directs the Department of Justice to create uniform accreditation standards for law enforcement agencies and requires law enforcement officers to complete training on racial profiling, implicit bias, and the duty to intervene when another officer uses excessive force. And finally, one of the major parts of this bill it enhances existing enforcement mechanisms to remedy violations by law enforcement, along with dealing with qualified immunity. How does it deal with it? Lowers the criminal intent standard from willful to knowing or reckless. Those are legal standards and legal terms. We're going to delve into that in just a moment and really understand how hard it is to, to charge and convict 
officers that abuse their power. But it lowers that standard for willful to knowing or reckless to convict a law enforcement officer for misconduct in a federal prosecution, not state, but federal. Keep in mind, this bill addresses federal issues on the federal level, addresses police issues on the federal level, but it gives mandates to the states in some areas. It also limits qualified immunity as a defense to liability in a private civil action against a law enforcement officer. Now, again, a private civil action, not criminal, that was dealt with in the very first part. And it grants administrative subpoena power to the Department of Justice in pattern or practice investigations. So I want to also go to a couple of areas and discuss that um, were mentioned by uh, various persons in the video, the montage that was from Reuters and NBC News that dealt with ending racial and religious profiling. Um, also, it limits the use of military equipment on American streets, requires body cameras. In addition to that, it gives, empowers communities to reimagine public safety in an equitable and just way. It changes the culture of law enforcement with training to build integrity and trust. Again, this is a culture change and training change. And also to stop sexual assault in law enforcement custody. So let's go to a few of these areas and delve into it. Let's deal first with working to end racial and religious profile. This particular bill prohibits federal, state, and local enforcement, law enforcement from racial, religious, and discriminatory profile by mandating, how do they do that? Mandates, training on racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling for all law enforcement and requires law enforcement to collect data on all invest investigatory or investigative activities. Let's delve into that just a moment. It, it, it mandates racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling by training. Mandates the training. First of all, this should be something that's already done in police departments. If police departments are law enforcement, law enforcement officers, first responders, state employees, corporate employees, uh, civil service workers, all persons should be trained on racial, religious, and discriminatory uh, uh, profiling or actions in the workplace, all right? There are some jobs that you go to and it, it gives you an orientation of things you should not do on the job. Racial, religious, and discriminatory profiling should be one of those, but it's not. So what this does, it, 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 it mandates that training. Now, Around that mandate, is it an annual training? Is it a training where you have to take an examination, pass an assessment? What's the follow-up? So this will be worked out in what we call the policy uh, of, of regulations of this particular act. In other words, it would now be, standards will be created to effectuate the effectiveness of that particular mandate of this act. So. How do we work to end racial and religious profiling? Training. Education, 
And if you look at it, training under education, I believe education is the key. But how do you now enforce that and make sure that it, it, it is operating in a way that's impactful? That boils down to the requirements. Two, say banning chokeholds and no knock words. It bans chokeholds, as I said before, uh, also courted holes at the federal level and conditions law enforcement funding. Ah, here we go. Conditions law enforcement funding for state and local governments banning chokeholds. So this is a provision that's used quite a bit in federal laws and statutes. In other words, if you're going to receive certain type of funding, you got to have this on your books. So that's a way of how laws get states and localities to play ball. So if you're going to secure this funding, certain type of funding, don't say what type, you got to ban chokeholds in, very, uh, in various types of, 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 ch- of holes that cut off blood flow in air, your air, airway. It also bans no-knock warrants in drug cases at the federal level, and it conditions law enforcement funding for state and local governments banning no-knock warrants at the local state level. Here we go again. How do we now mandate local and state governments to ensure that this ban is made? In drug cases, we attach funding to it. Also, it requires that deadly force be used only as a last resort. Only as a last resort, deadly force is used. How do you now under how do you now understand if it is a last resort? It requires officers to employ de-escalation tactics first. So you gotta make sure that before you use deadly force, I try to de-escalate. Of course, looking at the totality of the circumstances, you have to try to, you know, you have to find out and try to do it uh, when it is appropriate, looking at the totality of circumstances. Now, with this, this is nothing new, but this is where it changes the standard to evaluate what law enforcement use force was justified from whether the force was reasonable to whether the force was necessary. Reasonable is a very broad standard, and we get into legal standards. What's reasonable to you may not be reasonable to me. What's reasonable to me may not be reasonable to the jury. What's reasonable to the jury may not be reasonable to the judge. But when you change that standard to necessary, then now you're getting into something, a standard that's, that's, that's more narrow. But, it, but conditions This conditions grants on state and local enforcement agencies establishing the same use of force standard. Again, tying funding. You got to use this standard. So not only on a federal level, but the state and local. So we see now that a lot of these standards are being tied to funding. That's why we probably are not seeing this particular act, this George Floyd Justice and Policing Reform Act of 2020 passed because we're messing with the funding mechanism for our law enforcement agencies on the local and state level. There's no issue on the federal level because Congress 
pass those, they can pass those laws and mandate that. This is totally an issue on the state and local level. Also, let's look at the third provision, military equipment on American streets and body cameras. You may remember during the crack revolution, we saw where military vehicles were utilized uh, in breaking in and busting down drug houses used in large uh, uh, SWAT type operations and the like. Well, this funding kept coming through. And now we have, basically in some cities, when there are marches, when there's social unrest, or even when there is an operation for police, if you look at those vehicles that are used, how the soldiers are dressed, and the carnage from those raids or the social unrest, what's the difference between our streets in America and a country that we see overseas as going through civil war? It's kind of hard to look at the difference. But let's see what this does. In this bill, it limits the transfer of military-grade equipment to state and local law enforcement. A lot of times when military vehicles are what you call surplus, or it's used slightly, then that, that equipment is then transferred to state and local law enforcement. It limits this. What is the, what is the standard of limit? Is it one vehicle a year? Or is it out of two? Or is it 10 out of 100? What is limit? So we got to delve deep into that and really define what limit is. It also requires federal uniform officers to wear body cameras and require state and local uh, enforced law enforcement to use existing federal funds to ensure the use of body cameras. I, I was speaking with one local law enforcement officer who was really not a fan of body cameras because he said it took up too much time to put on another piece of equipment to put on, take the uh, card out, record it, I mean, let it uh, download, put it back, and things of that nature, and charge it. Fast forward a year, he said this was the best thing ever because it really, what they found in their department, a lot of things that individuals said that the officers did, they went back and looked at the tape, and they, they actually didn't do it. So it really cut down on a lot of complaints and going up to the next level. So they loved it. I think individuals that don't like body cameras are those persons that are not following the standards that are set. It also requires marked federal police vehicles to have dashboard cameras. Dashboard cameras, body cameras, these cell phones with cameras, you can't hide. It's too many mechanisms. And we're not, we haven't even addressed the surveillance on streets and highways from those cameras. It's a lot there. Body cameras, it's a smart way to go. It's going to help you. It's going to help everyone. It's going to help law enforcement. It's going to help society as a whole. This makes sense. Now, where it gets a little sticky, hold police accountable in court. It makes it easier to prosecute offending officers. Remember, we talked about this. I'm going to deal with this standard, willful or reckless. But it makes it easier to prosecute offending officers by amending the federal criminal statute to prosecute police misconduct. It amends it. The mens rea requirement, which is needed in, to prove any criminal act. Did you have the uh, a mindset 
or did you have the appropriate standard to do this? 18 U.S.C., United States Code, Section 242. It's amended from willfulness to reckless. Willfulness means that you intended to do this. That's a very high standard, extremely high. You got to have evidence. You got to have all kinds of things. A lot of these things happen or where we see individuals killed in police custody because it's in the moment. There's no time to dissect what went on in law enforcement's head or anything like that, unless it's something that's planned. That's a different story. But willfulness raises, it's a very high standard to me, which means that almost never you meet it. Less than 1% of 1% is met. But it changes to recklessness. A recklessness standard is a lower standard, which deals with now, it's a standard of care, which deals with the actions in that circumstance as opposed to the mindset. The actions in, the cir- in that particular moment, given the circumstances, as, as opposed to the mindset. That's huge. That's big. It also enables individuals to recover damages in civil court when law enforcement officers violate their constitutional rights by eliminating qualified immunity. Now, eliminating qualified immunity is big. It's like saying, I'm taking something away that you've always had the ability to have. That's not... I mean, you're going to get automatic pushback. I think qualified immunity should not be eliminated, but rather examine how broad, the the broadness of it, the breadth, the depth, all of it. But also, I believe that we should come to a meeting of the minds to understand that law enforcement officials, just like many individuals in a profession, should be responsible for some of their actions and what we call personal liability insurance that we all cover as professionals or ENO, errors and omissions. So I think that that part of the justice, the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act is primarily, I mean, the major holdup, the major holdup in getting this bill passed. I don't think it's going to pass with this provision act. It's just not going to happen. Not in its current form. If you go back, make some tweaks, yes, but eliminate qualified immunity, making it easier to prosecute officers from willfulness to recklessness, I think it's a no-go. Not saying it's not the right idea, but it does need some, in my opinion, it does need some tweaking. But that's number one. Number two is the funding attached to certain types of provision. Chokeholds, I think that's a no-brainer. The training for uh, ending racial and religious profiling, that's a no-brainer. Limiting police, military equipment on streets, I think that's a no-brainer. Requiring body cameras, the funds are already there, no-brainer. Holding police accountable in court, I think that is going to be an issue. By the way, it is currently written. But holding police, law enforcement officials accountable that commit bad acts, Anyone would think, especially after George Floyd, uh, was Brianna, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Chris Cooper, all these individuals. Now, of course, Eric Garner, Trayvon Martin, others, all of them were not killed by law enforcement. But we see how society subjects certain people to certain things and not others. 
The George Floyd uh, Justice Policing Act of 2020 also provides a provision. It improves for investigating police misconduct. It improves the use of pattern and practice investigations at a federal level by granting the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, or the DOJ, uh, CRD, subpoena power. It creates a grant program for state attorneys generals to develop authority to conduct independent investigation into problematic police departments. I think after what we saw in Windsor, uh, Virginia, with the unfortunate incident with the officer, I believe last name Garcia, against the uh, U.S. Army officer, I think shows that, and the response of the police department, um, I think it really shows that we do need to have some type of ability to at least review, not saying investigate, not saying indict, but review problematic police departments. If you're, if this is happening all the time, if there's an issue with this particular department where you get the same type of issues, same type of complaints, the state AG's attorney general should have that provision, that power to do. I think it just makes sense. Another aspect of this bill, as we continue to dive deeply into the George Floyd for Justice Policing Act of 2020, it empowers communities to reimagine public safety in an equitable and just way. What does that mean? Now, this bill, it reinvests in communities by supporting critical community-based programs that change the culture of law enforcement and empower communities to reimagine public safety in an equitable and just way. It does, now, that's a lot. Right. That is a lot. It's a it looks like someone took a broad creative, you know, brush and said, hey, this is what community should be able to do. But how is that effectuated? It establishes public safety innovation grants for community based organizations to create local commissions and task, task force to help communities to reimagine and develop concrete, just and public safety protocol safety approaches. These local commissions would operate similar to Obama's task force for 21st century policing. Now, keep in mind, this provision would have no authority, no force of law, but there's funds there to help you create a commission to come up with, with, with suggestions. I think communities have already been doing this, but it just gives a little bit more money and it also gives support and, uh, may, and really it creates a structure, a framework for this to work. I understand it. I get it. Will it be effective? Commissions like this for community-based programs are only as effective as the community and the willingness of the local law enforcement to work with them. That's it. There's no federal oversight other than probably with the grant, grant monies which community-based organizations really have to understand and take a look at, make sure they have the um, checks and balances in place to ensure that their goodwill is not destroyed by some bad actors themselves. But I get it. I understand it. I think it's good. It gives empowerment by funding, supporting these programs that are already in existence and creating new ones. So I like it. Also, it helps to change the culture of law enforcement with training and build integrity and trust. Let's take a look at this. It requires creation of law enforcement accreditation standard recommendations 
based on President Obama's task force, leasing task, Obama's task force for 21st century police. Creates law enforcement development and training programs to develop best practices, studies the impact of laws and rules that allow law enforcement officers to delay answers to questions posed by investigators for misconduct. Enhances funding for pattern and practice of discrimination investigation for these programs managed by the DOJ. Community Relations Service requires the AG, Attorney General, to collect data on investigative actions and detentions by federal law enforcement agencies, the racial distribution of drug charges, the use of deadly force by and against law enforcement, as well as traffic and pedestrian stops and detentions. And it establishes a Department of Justice Task Force, or DOJ, to coordinate the investigation, prosecution, enforcement, efforts of federal, state, and law governments in cases related to law enforcement misconduct. I find this provision to be alarming, not because it's not good, good stuff. It is. It's good policy. But I find it alarming because it should already exist, and it doesn't. There is no federal standard for law enforcement training. Think about that. There is no law enforcement accreditation standard on a federal level. It's not a good thing. So that means you have departments operating on different training standards or accreditation standards. So, the, the, and again, I, I want us to look at the difference between accreditation standards and training. So it creates a law enforcement development and training programs to develop best practices. So all officers are trained. There are standards that are, that are followed. But to be accredited means that you have to meet certain high standards. And we don't have that. I remember serving in the military, the U.S. Army. And we went to, I went to my basic training base for right after high school graduation. I never forget two weeks after I graduated, May 25th. Uh, 1993, I was on a plane to Fort Hill, Oklahoma, June 9th, 1993, two, almost two weeks. And that training that I received is the same training that other soldiers received, the basic training across the country. It didn't deviate because I was in Oklahoma or someone else was in Florida or someone else was in Texas or California. It's the same standard. So that Wherever I go, if I was training in Oklahoma, stationed in Hawaii, I have the same training standards as someone who was trained from California, trained in Florida, and then stationed in Hawaii. It doesn't matter. This makes sense, but it's alarming that we don't have it. Shocking. Studying the impact. Study the impact of laws and rules that allow officers to delay answers to questions by investigators. Why are we studying the impact of it? It should be a standard where we say officers should answer questions within a certain period of time, you know, within normal circumstances. The fact that the case in Louisiana where the state troopers withheld information for two years is unacceptable. And we found that the information they told the families were flat out lies. There's no way, way around it. They were lies to cover up what actually happened. We don't need to set the impact. That's the impact. We need to find a standard when information should be given. 
in, in law, we have what you call time delays. And again, we're not attacking law enforcement. We're saying that there should be reasonable time delays to give answers. Give all the support that's needed to get it done right, but there should be reasonable time delays. And various programs to report and track certain things that are happening, various stops and things of that nature, detentions, drug charges, deadly force, and the like. Collecting data. Data is good, but what are you going to do with that data? We need a follow-up there. Also, improve transparency by collecting data on police misconduct and use of force. Creates a nationwide police misconduct registry to prevent problematic officers who are fired or leave one agency from moving to another jurisdiction without any accountability. Mandate state law enforcement agencies to report use of force data disaggregated by race, sex, disability, religion, and age. We saw this happen in the Catholic Church during the abuse scandal that that broke years ago, and we're still seeing fallout from it. Uh, Priests that were defrocked would end up going to, or priests that were left one or had trouble in one parish, end up going to another. Nobody reported it. Nobody kept up with it. And they committed the same abuse, unfortunately, uh, there. Not just the select ones that committed misconduct. Same thing with officers. Same thing with bad employees. If you don't correct the problem, you're going to continue to doing the same thing in another place. It just happens. So therefore, that transparency, I think it's a no-brainer, but why is it, it shouldn't have to be mandated. It's a no-brainer, but I understand why it has to be mandated. I think this is a good thing. It's good for society. It's good for other police departments because the cost of police misconduct falls squarely on departments and the taxpayers of various municipalities when we give out these, when we these settlements of millions and millions and millions of dollars are awarded. When your 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 community gets a bad uh, a bad uh press for police misconduct, you know, one bad apple, as the saying goes, spoils the whole barrel. So persons are now looking at your community as representing this when it's actually a phenomenal place. Again, good policy. I'm just shocked that it's not already there. And finally, it stops sexual assault uh, in law enforcement custody. Basically, it stops law enforcement officers from engaging in sexual acts, even if there's consent, while someone is in custody. Again, good policy all the way around. This particular bill, the Justice and Policing Act, named the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, establishes, in essence, a national standard for the operation of police departments, mandate data collection of police encounters, reprogram existing funds to invest in transformative community-based policing programs, and streamlines federal law to prosecute excessive force and establish independent prosecutors for police investigation. This particular bill is identical in its wording and language of the 116th Congress with the support of the entire Democratic Caucus and three Republicans. This is based upon uh, the judiciary.house.gov. You can take a look at this document that I've been referencing throughout this particular new series 
of what's in it on the Claville Report. Also, you can go to House Bill itself, 7120. You can look at the bill summaries. You can look at when it was passed. You can look at when it was introduced. And it'll give you more information and insight about what's in it. Especially as this bill was Representative Karen Bass, Democrat out of California, who also serves and also from the House Judiciary Armed Services, Energy and Commerce Committee. The George Floyd Justice and Police Act of 2020 is a very bold bill. As you saw, I discussed and talked about how this bill goes very far in a lot of areas, such as eliminated qualified immunity. But it also gives some common sense um, provisions and policies that really should already exist. National register, a national standard of training. But as the saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun. This was, a lot of these provisions were, were actually recommended, actually recommended during the time of President Obama's administration where he put together a who's who of law enforcement, individuals who are well-respected across the country and across their professions in order to create a 21st century policing profile mechanism. He created a task force to give this 21st policing standard. It was rejected then and with the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020, it looks like there is a pushback and rejection of it now. So where do we go? We'll see. In another series and in another episode of the Clavier Report, we'll talk about and discover and really ask ourselves, why hasn't this bill moved any further? Why was it blocked in the Senate? Well, we'll delve into it. But thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Clavier Report, our new segment and series entitled, What's In It? Well, we took a look, a deep dive at the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2020. Join us next time as we continue to uncover and really talk about and dive deep into public policy, court decisions, and legal cases to better understand the intricacies of these complex and impactful words and how they control our lives. Thank you for your support of the Clavier Report. Continue to follow us on our social media and our ACAST podcast. Until next time, be well. We'll see you.